Wake up. Wake up, motherfucker. I'm not talking to you. Hey. Hey, look at me, you piece of shit. Did you actually love Annie? Okay. Welcome to Killer Casting. I'm your host, Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director of TV, film, video games, all kinds of stuff. And I've cast around, I was trying to add it up the other day, about 200 or so versions of serial killers and psychopaths and even more detectives and FBI agents and victims and survivors. Mystery thrillers, cosplaying as police procedurals are my jam. And with me to unpack the weird and wonderful finale of True Detective Night Country is Coming to us from the future, from tomorrow in Melbourne, Australia, my wingman from down under. Is he awake? He is Dean mm. Laughing. Hey, Dean. Yes, welcome to Tuesday over here, folks. I can tell you that we got at least, you guys have got at least 24 hours on the planet because it's Tuesday and the sun's shining and all is good. And yes, welcome to the recap of the series, Lisa, formerly known as True Detective Night Country, but after last night is henceforth titled Murder on the Polar Express. Oh my God. Shut up. Are you... By the way, are you feeling proud of yourself? You called it. You called out something that indeed came to pass in the finale, and you look so full of yourself right now. But we're going to get to no. That. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. Okay, but also no, joining joining us today, mm. we have two special guests. They are also mm. in the podcast overse. Two TV obsessives like Dean and I. Please welcome Jen and Sarah from the podcast. TV and Us podcast. Hi, y'all. Hello, hello. Thank you so Welcome. much for having us. We're excited to be here. We're excited to dive into this jam-packed, action-packed finale of the six-episode series. I think there's going to be so much to discuss. So we're excited to spend the time to dive in fully with you all. Get to hang out with you all. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm, I'm Sarah. I'm so excited to, to be with you guys. And it's always fun to hang out with other TV people. So this mm -hmm. is going to be a great time. Yeah. yeah. So you guys, you ladies, gals have also been covering this series this season. What it, What is your hot take on the finale? Just like a couple words, just your gut reaction. I have had such a journey with this show. I started out episodes one, two, and three, holding on to hope, holding on to optimism that this was going to come through for me. Because I just love the world that has been created. Mm -hmm. And it was squarely episode four that we took a left turn with the show. And uh, it lost me a little bit. And I think this finale is leaving me feeling a little bit icy about the show. But mm. I, I started out hot. I started out hot with the show. So Interesting. Uh, Sarah, yeah. what about you? Journey? Yeah, I have been more skeptical of the show from the beginning. I haven't been enjoying myself. There are certain portions that I've really liked and I think are interesting. But I think on the whole, for me, this show has felt 
very disjointed and there it feels I, I don't know I it doesn't feel cohesive to me and I feel like I felt that even in this finale that mm. there's a lot of things that happen but I'm like what what are we doing here folks I think on the whole it's okay but I really wanted this to be great and I think the writing lets it down a little bit yeah okay mm. Dini what about you I, I just to pick up on Sarah's point everybody unavoidably compares it to season one because season one was off the freaking charts. They just nailed it, right? It was Nick's first series. And I think a bit like Mr. Inbetween, Lisa, like when something percolates for so long, the first season is always like fantastic. It's rare to see seasons improve. You can think of stuff like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos, the real like super, super high end shows that have either maintained or slightly improved over their trajectory. So we, I think there's, this season has copped an unfair kind of whack by people going, oh, it's not season one again. And the same thing for Fargo. You know, Lisa and I love Fargo series four, right? The one set in the 30s, whatever, with Chris. And that's been panned. But we loved it because we're not always compared. I don't want the same four. I don't want to see Hill Street Blues, right? For 20 years. I don't want that. Yeah. Well, Which is a good show. For me, this finale, there were times when I was absolutely breathless and you can't see what I'm doing but I like I was like this I was like clutching <laughs> my pajamas around my throat some of the time I was like no 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 I mean I was like going absolutely bonkers there was one big letdown for me there was one string that was left hanging that I actually cared about I didn't care about a lot of stuff I didn't care about the fucking supernatural stuff I didn't care about who done it? Because as I've said, Jennifer and Sarah, many times our listeners know, there are only like eight stories in the world. And writers are constantly just trying so hard to create new and new, new stories. And there really aren't new stories. We, are, we knew that there was like a limited amount of ways that this was all going to end. However, there are just, just multitudes of people in the world, millions of characters and relationships. And that's what I came away from it, that the series really, above all else, is a family drama. This is a show about families and the family units. And you see that dominoes over and over again from Liz and her stepdaughter, Leah, that familial relationship, obviously Hank Pryor and his son, Pete, and of course, Evangeline Navarro and her sister and her mother. I mean, just generations of trauma that are playing themselves out. And this is how it really does connect to season one of True Detective. And of course, Rust Cole's deep trauma, his, his deep cynicism and grief over the loss of his daughter. I've seen some very, very smart people out there, a lot of TV writers saying really strange things about this season. Like, if it just was only called Night Country, it would be better because it shouldn't be included in the True Detective canon bullshit, which is so stupid. It is completely connected and has every right to be because each season of True Detective is about a duo of police investigators, how they're different, how they come together, how they betray each other how they become intimate partners in some ways. And I just think there's this sort of misbegotten loyalty to the first season that is kind of absurd and to me very obviously sexist and borderline racist. But anyway, we'll get to that. And Dean, I don't know if you heard it, but there's a moment in this episode that if you leaned in closely and you listened very carefully, you would hear the distinct wheeze of millions of testicles being deflated and contracted as many male viewers watch this vigilante indigenous women's brigade storm into Salal. 
and guns blazing. Anyway, but we'll get to that. So yeah. why don't we start where it starts? In the beginning of the episode, we are there with Evangeline and Liz as they go into the ice cave. Any thoughts about this first sequence where they're hacking away, they get into the ice caves and they make their way through these catacombs of ice, which, by the way, apparently were boiling hot. I mean, these were built sets and they were absolutely sweating their asses off trying to go through them and pretend to be cold and all these layers of parkas. Any thoughts, ladies? You know, I was thinking about just how much it felt like this infiltration into a new world and a new place and the discoveries that they make. It felt very Indiana Jones-esque or the Chamber of Secrets-esque, right? Like we fall into a world and all of a sudden like things are being revealed. And I thought that the revelation of them discovering Clark and kind of running into him in that kind of jump scare moment, Mm -hmm. from a pacing perspective, I think it starts off the episode with momentum. But there's just, we've been waiting for this moment for so long that I wonder if had this happened maybe in the penultimate episode of the Mm. season, would we have more time to just sit with that? Because there's so much to his story and and reveals and information that he shares that we'll get to later on in the episode. Yeah, yeah. That I'm just like, man, like this is such a big moment. This would have been thrilling in the penultimate episode and then build the momentum from there as we head into the finale. So it was a strong start to the finale, but I think Pacing-wise, man, there's just so much ground to cover that we will discuss. Sarah, anything about the, these this beginning sequence? I loved the set. Like you said, Jen, like you go into this and you are transported into a different world. And while I have some qualms about this season, the setting, I think, is so mm-hmm. strong and has so much character and so much interest. And I felt like that while they were in the caves. And that was my favorite part of that. I was like, oh, this is so cool. I've never been in an ice cave before. Let's explore it a little bit. Sadly, I'm going to be the one that pours cold water on this section because Sarah and Jen won't know my background, which is I've done a lot of cave diving and been in a lot of caves. So the idea that you just wander off and you've not been in ice caves. I haven't been in ice caves, but I've been in plenty of caves. And I can tell you, they don't form at the top of mountains. They're at the bottom of the, of the mountains. So okay. you don't just wander off in a blizzard where you've got six inches of visibility and bury your, your axe in the ground. And guess what? We broke into the exact middle of the ceiling. But if you'd have been 10 feet one way or the other, you'd be digging for the next 50 years because there is no... Yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, so that's unrealistic. But this is like you ask a pilot about Top Gun. They're going to give you a thousand things right, for bullshit right, or, right. or the same sort of thing as that. Anyway, but the idea that they would go wandering off into this cave with all these passages how are you going to find your way back? You run a line so that yeah. you can pencil and Gretel. Like you when you're I mean? spelunking, right? Like when you're spelunking, you have a, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Bingo. And then the other thing that just drove me crazy, and then I'll shut up whinging about the a lack of reality in it, is so there they are standing on what appears, it is the floor, but they don't know it's the ceiling of another chamber. So Navarro falls through the floor. Liz walks up with her boots practically over the <laughs> hole and says, oh, hey, I'll try and get help. You just make sure that you don't. I'm going, get from the edge of the hall. And then, <laughs> oh, shit, she's fallen in as well. What a surprise. Anyway, it all advanced the plot because it was from that particular chamber that they had the jump scare with Clark and off they went to the... Yeah, I would say that those falls chamber. are actually jump scares in themselves when somebody suddenly has yeah. Their, yeah. their feet cool. knocked out from them. <laughs> I would say that in the beginning when they're going through these caverns, Dean, I don't have the production designer's name handy. Maybe you can find it. But the caves looked almost muscular almost like they were going through like a birth canal. I mean, I could almost see the vascularity in the walls. And I thought it was just absolutely stunning. And I mean, I knew they were built. I know that they they weren't really in an ice cave, 
But I thought the glisten to them was was just so mesmerizing. And then they come across, of course, this part of the ice caves that is completely electrified, right? It's got power, it's got lights, it's got all kinds of stuff in there. And that's where I started thinking. They didn't tie up this end, but I guess this is where, and Dean, remind me who this character was, the guy who was the power guy. Is this what he was sort of grokking for them, like getting all no, of no, this no, power no, into the... No, it's their secret Bond villain hideaway, right? It's the yeah. hideaway within a hideaway. <laughs> like I mean, like that. Yeah. It's like you've already got this to solve research facility that's in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. And yeah. it's like, then why does it need its own secret? It looked the same as the other part that had ice cores and things. It's like, I didn't get the sense of that. However, what I did think it might have been put there for was is because it's an allegory for another level of like hell, right? You, now mm. you've got you got an underground and especially with the Sedna kind of reference that she is the avenging goddess of the underworld. And so I think it's something to do with that and just the sort of the, not the implication, but you get a sense that there's an underneath and there's an above and anything underneath is sinister. I think it was about that more than anything. But yeah. And you have this delicious moment where they're in this part of the underground ice cave lab where they slowly look up and they see above them the, what do you call it? The old, the the remains of the, the dinosaur. Spir- the spiral? Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a spiral, but it's it's a creature that is spiraled yeah. into mm-hmm. the, the spine of the creature. And it's just, just this kind of a stunning sort of it thing. It a bit aliens-esque, didn't it? As you said, Lisa, the, the scenes. And I, I don't really have too much complaints about the way they style the ice caves. And by the way, the production designer that you were talking about is Daniel Taylor. So shout out to Daniel for his great work on the series overall. Because I have seen footage, although I haven't been to Antarctica, and I've seen people diving. I've seen high-def footage, people diving inside of icebergs. And I think they might have used that as a guide for how to make it look because that part of it does look very realistic. Oh, my God. All right. Mm. So we come from the ice cave. We find the super secret ladder of doom that they enter into realize mm-hmm. that oh my gosh we're in salal yeah dean i guess i agree with you calling the bullshit it's like why is that cave so close to like how did they not find it before but anyway that's fine so they realize that they're in the lab and they're they search through the abandoned salal lab for clark just before we go any further did anyone get the vibe of coming up and down to that hatch did it remind you of anything another TV series, Hatch features prominently. Did, I got a Lost vibe out of that. Remember in Lost how they had the I never Hatch and it was it. all this stuff hidden under it? No wonder. Yeah, that's okay. a good call. That's, anyway, that's a good call. Yep. I just got a little flash on that. I didn't fixate on it, but I was like, oh, that's a bit like Lost. Jennifer one. and Sarah, anything about once they actually get into Salal and they chase, he's like a little bunny rabbit running around this lab. They're chasing him. What are your thoughts about their confrontation finally with Clark? Yeah, it was neat to see the way the show leans into that adrenaline. Lisa, you're talking about like having your PJs up to your neck. Mm-hmm. Is that just that raw energy, that adrenaline that the show is able to lean into? Like, I think that's what the show is able to do really well. When we talk about entertainment, there's all of that interpersonal relationship. But I think the show does a good job of leaning into a sense of time and place and things are eerie and they're not as they seem. And there's that sense of like foreboding. And like this sequence, I think is a great example of an aspect of the show that, man, had they leaned into more heavily again, I think there the show covers a lot of ground. There's so many dynamics at play here, but that heart pumping sense of adrenaline. I mean, I had a great time. The first 15 minutes reads like a thrilling, 
adrenaline-inducing experience. I think that whole chase sequence, Raymond Clark kind of trapping them, all of that was good fun just as far as pure entertainment. So I thought that was really great. Yeah, and I especially loved that moment when he's dragging Navarro and she starts to wake up and then we cut away for a little bit and then the next time we go back to her, she's just beating the crap out of him. And I'm like, that is just so perfect for who Navarro is. Like, not only is she this like really, really tough woman and she's like physically strong, but she has been through hell throughout this yeah. season. She and looks so like she, it too. They let yeah. her look like she's absolutely hollowed out in her soul yes. in, in this sequence. Mm. Yeah. And so that was yeah. just an excuse for like a release. <laughs> let me just pummel this dude. It fit the character and was also so satisfying. I love to join Dot. And so once again, he's dragging her. We know this has got a background in horror. And again, he's dragging her and I'm going, that's the scene from The Shining when Jack Nicholson is dragging Shelley Duvall and he's about to kill her. And then the other point is that she's so physical and we all know in real life that Kaylee is a serious, serious world champion boxer. The other thing that surprised me from the trailers, I could see that she was in a fist fight with the four guys out front of the auto store. And it was one of them was the asshole wife beating husband. And I was surprised initially to see that she actually got the shit beat out of her at that. But now we understand that she went looking for the pain that was after the death of her sister. It's like she was nihilistic at that point. But again, her against Clark was only going to end one way, which is Liz saving his life. Jennifer and Sarah, what did you make of this interrogation technique that they employ on Clark? That they have absolutely no hesitation, not only rough him up, but really, you know, torment him with the sound of his ex-lover's dying gasps. I mean, they seem to be so in step with each other in this level of sadism, for lack of a better word. And of course, we see later what really went down with the Wheeler suicide murder. Well, what would you make of this section? It's not often that we see women being so aggro and violent and not just incapacitating him and calling the authorities and waiting for backup to SWAT and Shamar Moore to come storming through the door and saving the day. Yeah, I actually like when that moment was happening, I have to admit it was it was jarring at first to see that unfold. But I had to check myself kind of in the, the few moments afterwards to be like, we have seen a scene like this in detective cop shows, all of that with men doing that to other men. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are women that are need to do their job. And this is the technique they need to take. And it's great. I'm grateful that the show doesn't shy away from that and tone that down because there's these two women that are playing these roles because that's part of their job as detectives to figure out the tactics they need to do to gather the information that they need. And it's because we haven't seen that, we've seen that in so many other contexts that it feels jarring at first. But I'm, I really afterwards thought about it and I was like, you know what? The show is choosing not to tone that down for the sake of who these characters are. And I, I love that they really, they commit and they lean into it and we get that moment. But I have to admit, it was jarring at first. And I think when there's like, I think two scenes later, when we see that their objective is they're like, hey, is he ready yet? You think he's ready yet for the questioning? And I thought that that was, I, th I appreciated that choice. It was initially a little bit like, oh, like this is a lot. But mm -hmm. uh, then again, we've seen that happen a million other times with male characters playing these roles. The women can do it too. And they're getting their job done. I like that perspective, Jen. I didn't think of that at the time. But like, I hate torture in anything no matter who's doing it so I was like oh do we have to do this like is this really our best choice here and then like the duct tape on his hair too oh, I was like, that's so mean that's gonna hurt let's so tactile let's like <laughs> feel that yeah so I was cringing the whole time but it, 
it's a means to an end. They got what they needed. All right, that's fine. I survived. Raymond didn't. It's okay. Yeah, I was actually surprised that they did this, like that they made them go that. And like you said, they were very matter-of-fact about it. They didn't discuss it. I just thought it was so offhand when Liz says, hey, you want to get a coffee? I was like, yeah, okay. It was almost like, okay, let's go get a taco. But to just rewind one scene. So after they've captured Clark, before that, of course, he's belted Navarro with the fire extinguisher, but he locked Liz in the ice core sample storage room. Whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, with the ominous sign saying limited exposure only. And she gets locked in there. And so she's running around with with a Glock right, ready to kill, and then she holsters it and decides she's going to MacGyver her way out of there by ripping a pole off the wall and then trying to break the glass. I'm going, lady, you got a fucking nine mil. Like, I'm clearly, I don't think she's going to be the next Bond. I don't think she's going to get the next James Bond role because she put the gun away and tried to be MacGyver. So I really, but that's so interesting you bring that up. I love that they had her doing something so physical. I just love that level of commitment and I just, I can't quite describe it, but I really noticed that moment. Now, after this, they go into the kitchen, as you say. I noticed a whole bunch of rotting oranges right away, and we all know what oranges mean. The one thing I want to mention is that, did you notice that in this, from the beginning of this episode, Liz is wearing a white parka, which we've never seen before. She usually wears like a dark black kind of police-issued parka. And I was wondering why, why? I mean, there's got to be a reason why they put her in a white parka. And the only thing I can think of, Dean, is at the end when she does fall into the water, that it was just much easier to light her in the tank because they filmed oh, that in, spoiler in, in the No, we'll get to it. But I just want to say before, because I'll forget, <laughs> that it's just very unusual to switch. If you're going to switch costumes, like the wardrobe, like those things are discussed like ad infinitum. So the fact that she's so obviously in a white parka I just thought that there has to be a reason this is going to pay off in some other reason. Usually we see somebody wearing a white shirt. They're usually going to get shot because red just shows up so much better on a, on a white shirt. I am so impressed by this scene with Finn Bennett when we cut to him cleaning up after the murder of his father and Heist. Is that the name, Heist? Yep. Okay. Yep. His pathos in this is just palpable and he's playing it so amazingly when Leah comes home and is kind of asking him what is wrong. You don't play a lie, right, when you're an actor. You don't try to pretend like I'm lying, right? You're trying to play the truth. And his truth is that I've killed my father. I'm getting rid of his body. I'm estranged from my wife. This has been a really intense night and he's got to sort of play that, oh, I'm just upset because my wife and I have had a fight. And there's just so many layers to his performance. I just thought it was just an incredibly mature and nuanced performance for a fairly young actor. Jennifer and Sarah, any thoughts about him? There's a later scene with with him and Kayla that I'm particularly keen to hear y'all's thoughts on. I think it comes soon after when he drops Lay off uh, at Kayla's house and Kayla kind of hops into the car. And they had that whole conversation around him saying, like, I did a bad thing. I need to do this one thing and then I'll be back. Like that, that is a one of, like you mentioned, Lisa, one of the many threads and, and kind of interpersonal family dynamics that we're seeing unfold in the show. I'm curious how that like was received by y'all, because I think it's one of the emotional cores that we see for that character. He's had this tension between his work life and his family life and the loyalties he has to Danvers and also the the relational dynamics at home too. And it's so present throughout every every episode and feels like such a through line. I'm intrigued to hear everyone's thoughts about that because there's 
there's kind of a, a big conversation that those two have in that scene. Yeah, I think the early Finn part that stuck out to me was just his care for Leah. I've been a Peter fan since day one. I've wanted to just like shake him though. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, like, why are you yeah. so attached to Danvers? But then you see this tender moment between him and Leah and you can see his true character coming out and how much he cares for people. And he doesn't want to harm people. And he definitely doesn't want to harm Leah. And so it was just great. Like you mentioned, like he is feeling so many emotions, grappling with so many things. And yet the most important thing is making sure that this young girl is safe. And I just I love that. It said so much about his character. Great performance. Great, great scene. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what to think about, Peter, because they initially he was such a sympathetic character. And we get the exposition from Leah that he fell over on purpose and let the guy who's that his father had just died, let him score the winning goal, had a stroke. And then there's these little tender scenes that they craft between Peter and Leah that when he hands her the Cheetos or whatever it was through the jail cell door, through the cell door, a little bit of gentle teasing when we first see them come together the first time because he used to babysit for us and all that kind of thing. Yet he's so neglectful of, not neglectful, but he's colder to his own wife and child and their needs. Like the fact that he didn't tell Danvers to go take a running jump when she said on Christmas Eve, go out and question, do this, do that, whatever it was. So to some extent, I feel his character has undeveloped throughout the series. I think it's sort of developed to mm. a point around the middle of the show. And then in this final episode, he's become almost an automaton. He's really, there's no emotion in his face. And I wondered if they're going to take him down the path of becoming his father. And at one point I wondered when he was mopping up and then he said, I've got these things I need to do and blah, blah, blah. The theory is about, is Kate his father? And is that why Hank's wife left? All those sorts of things. I wondered if it would be a reveal that he was working for Kate as well and he is the new Hank. But anyway. Huh, because I felt so much emotion from him in this episode, so much that he's best to bury. Like this guy is not going to be okay after this. I mean, they may be able to cover up the crime and, you know, he disposes of the evidence, but he's not okay. And hopefully he will continue to be a good father and and a good partner. But the scene that you brought up, Jennifer, of him and Kayla in the car, I was absolutely sure that that was like a Romeo and Juliet scene where these two are never going to see each other again. <laughs> like something horrible. Like, okay, see you at Friar Tucks. And, and like, nope, one of them is going to die. I really had a sense of doom that there is just no way that he's not going to fall through the ice. So in that way, it kind of surprised me that that didn't happen. But it really made me feel like, oh, no, this can't be good. Anytime a couple has a nice romantic kiss, I'll be back later. Like, no, it's not. It's not going to happen. Oh, huh. I think she even says, she says, make sure you come back to me. Or something oh, God. Like that. yeah. like, that's death, tempting death, fight 100%. Yeah. yeah. Death sentence right there. Hello all and welcome to TV and Us, a conversation show about the TV series we just can't stop talking about. My name is Jennifer Hahn. And I'm Sarah Callen. Each season we focus on a different show, reviewing it episode by episode. Along the way, we talk with guests, give out some fake awards, and more, all with the goal of connecting with one another through TV. So we invite you to hang out and watch along with us.
right. So now we get the big reveal. We get the big explanation we've all been waiting for. What really happened to Annie Kay? Jennifer and Sarah, take it away. How did you find this telling of the death of Annie Kay? Yeah, man. They've positioned the death. So there's obviously many layers to what is happening in Ennis. There's the layers of what happened to Annie, and then we get the second half of the episode, which focuses on what happened to the scientists. And I was chuckling to myself because you, you get these like crazy, like work obsessed scientists that have seen their life's work destroyed and has led them to they basically take out Annie Kay because of the way that she's destroyed their life work. And I was literally like, oh, like this makes sense. Like but she's a brain, witness, but she's also a witness. Yeah. To their, to their, yeah, to, yeah, it's, it's some of the discoveries and whatnot. And I think the piece that I think is key is the fact that this is set in Venice, a place that these scientists have been isolated for so long. They've, they've dedicated their life to this thing. And so for them, their work has meant so much that to see it destroyed feels so big for the, for the thing that they are uncovering. And had this been set anywhere else, I think this doesn't work as well. But because it is set mm-hmm. in a place like Ennis, I think it it's much more feasible to me that, that these people have been driven to this the point of, of delirium and obsession and dedication that would cause them to murder the person that has taken out some of their life work and take out the witness to some of the discoveries. And I think that's key for actually like a lot of the readings of the other characters is that they are in an Ennis, in a place that is isolated, where there is such disconnect in their relationships and connection with each other. And so the choices they make, I think it's important to read it through the lens of being in a place like Ennis versus anywhere else. I think this, this a lot of the storylines don't work as well. And I think this one is key for this to feel more believable to me. No, that's a really good point. It was something that I actually kind of struggled with a little bit. I was like, okay, we're doing a murder on the Orient Express, but in Ennis. Okay. That's where I got stuck, though. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's a nice idea, but like you're borrowing from Agatha Christie and there's all sorts of meaning in that book, in that movie about why they all did what they did. And it's just some scientists, like, why are we killing this woman in this way over that? Like, because I was comparing it to the gravity of Murder on the Orient Express, I think I missed that reading of it. But I also thought that it was smart the way that we we saw the juxtaposition between what Clark was saying and then we actually see him smothering Annie. And mm-hmm. so, again, mm-hmm. like communicating that shame that he feels as a character and he is willing to admit some of the truth, but not the full truth and, and just all of the shame and fear and terror that he holds within himself based on what he did. So I thought that that was a good character revealing moment as well. Overall, I love the way that Issa has presented this. However, I really wish she had somebody from a science point of view just over her shoulder calling bullshit on certain things. Like the way her little toy boy, the teacher, is a global expert on everything. Like he's supposed to be a geography teacher and yet he's talking about DNA in the first meeting and then he's talking about the ice and how it can be this and that. He's like a, he's like a human Google. It's like, no, I'm calling bullshit on that. So the idea that a, a, a pollution from a mine over there, now you're talking to someone who understands hydrogeology and how, why fracking is a bad idea because you can frack over here and then you've got the same chemicals 200 kilometers away. I understand a thousand and they're there for centuries. I get that. But the idea that the specific type of pollution that the mine produces is somehow required to defrost the permafrost, it's called permafrost. And they went there to drill into permafrost. 
which is a lot softer than rock. We drill into all the time. So this whole, the basis that the whole reason for the nexus between Salal and Silver Sky was because it was a symbiotic relationship. I just don't buy it. And if you're trying to discover this groundbreaking DNA that's going to change the world, oh, we'll just pump a whole lot of chemicals into the stuff we're trying to test because that'll really help us get to the bottom of it. So I'm like, mm, no, nah, I don't get it. And Clark eventually, then he reveals, okay, this is how it went down. And we scientists killed Annie. As you've already covered, Sarah, it was actually him that, that administers the, the final blow. So I just want to shout out Amanda Whiting on the Vulture recap. Once the scientists, when they did what they did, she described them as the, quote, cloistered incels. I just thought that was a brilliant description of them. But also, he felt so entitled to do what he did. And this, at least his other podcast, Real Crime Profile, they cover all the time femicide and the right that a man has to take a woman's mm -hmm. life. And in this case, it was because he felt that his work was more important. And I thought that this raised one of the two major themes in this series. And one is the treatment of Indigenous people mm -hmm. in, certainly in, in, in this show, the, the Inuit slash uh, Inupiat people in Alaska. But the other one too is environment. And so you get down to this sort of, this theme of the greater good. It's like, he's saying, oh no, it's okay to murder her and it's okay to poison the town. And it's okay to, not okay, but it's justifiable that infants die at childbirth because we're developing all this technology and we're doing all this stuff. And on balance, it's going to be better. That's a really, I mean, it's a terrible argument, but I think it's one of the main themes and this respect for people and the plundering of natural resources in the short term for money versus respecting the people that you're extracting, whose land that is you're extracting that stuff from. And the balance between those two and the price that you pay in the long term versus the benefit you get in the short term. It's the classic ecological argument. It was Herman Daly was the guy famously who said, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, not the reverse. So that's a classic quote from environmental history. And I think that she's making that point here and I like it. So this scene for me was so incredibly affecting, this sequence of showing the group murder and the communitas that takes over their minds to make them one murderous octopus, basically, to kill her. I've cast, like I said, hundreds of these kinds of scenes, right? And hundreds of actresses who've had to play that Annie Kay character getting murdered. And it's usually a close-up on their face, showing her taking it, taking the wounds. And for me, this is the difference when you have a female writer and a female director, because it's all on them, right? And the horror that they're doing, you don't have to have the gratuitousness of watch. You know that she's in pain. It's horrible enough, but you don't need that graphic depiction of the blade going in and turning into her skin and her being suffocated. Kind of, Dean, it kind of reminded me of, what is it? Promising uh, Young yep. Woman. Promising uh, Young Woman. kind of mm. reminded me a little yeah. bit of that. I was taken by that, especially. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, this is based, Ennis is not a real place, but it is based on a real place where there's a whole bunch of fucking murders going on and it's, it's all being covered up by the police and possibly by the former mayor in a real little town in just outside the Arctic Circle that my podcast is going to be covering. You know, the murder of Jennifer Kirk and Susu Norton and and the, the violent abuse of many, many other women that are going completely unpunished. You have serial abusers who've got like 91 counts of violence against them who have never been convicted. It's just 
unbelievable for that reason, but because I'm, my mind has been really into those cases, I found this scene really affecting and, and that I could see it made all the sense in the world to me that these men, you know, once uh, Lunt hits her, once he harms her first, there's no way out. There's no way back. Like they have to annihilate her, all of them together. You know, she can't be allowed to survive and tell the tale of just being attacked. You know, they have to make her disappear. And I just thought that that was just an incredible, incredible moment. Moving on. So the next revelation we get is the flashback. Once Clark confesses all of this and tells the story, it looks like Evangeline is going to murder him, is going to take him out. And we see Danvers walk away, complicit in it. And she flashes back to what really happened with the Wheeler murder, suicide. What did you make of the revelation or not a huge revelation because we knew it was one of several options, but what did you make of the depiction of that? Jen? Yeah, I thought it was a really great way that the way the scene is shot where it's actually focused on Danvers and her face and you see her waiting for the gunshot and we as the viewers are waiting for the gunshot for Navarro taking Raymond Clark out and you you wait for what feels like forever right for that the yeah. moment to come and it doesn't and you see Navarro come out and and I thought it was just a really great moment to show the years that have gone by and the growth and the evolution of Navarro as a character in that she has shifted her view of what justice looks like and what honoring the victims in this case looks like. And I, I thought that was just like a really great character moment because we are, we too, as the audience are waiting for it to come. Danvers is waiting for it to come and it doesn't. I thought it was a really great moment. And then obviously there's that conversation that they have where we get to see a softer side of Danvers and and that emotion from her as well of like, if it wasn't going to be you, I was right there ready to do it too. And I think that's a common theme and a thread for both of these two women is just their sense of empathy and compassion for and how personal these cases are sometimes leads them down these paths where their instincts are slightly warped and, and their desires for justice are true and good. And yet they are learning to evolve and invest those instincts and those desires in a way that they believe ultimately will be better. And, it, and you see both of them change and grow over the course of this, this six episode series. So I really loved that little moment. Like we are sitting in that silence and, and it never comes. And I thought that was a really great moment for both of those two characters. I was surprised because when Danvers walks away, I was like, oh, my gosh, you guys are going to have to figure out how to dispose of another body. Like, <laughs> you doing this? And then yep. Navarro doesn't take him out. And I, I think to your point, Jen, like it's so impressive because she has been working on this Annie K case for years. And she is so passionate, like you were saying, Lisa, about these women who have been murdered, these indigenous women who have been murdered, haven't gotten justice. and now. Navarro is in this place where she knows somebody who did it and she has a confession. She has proof. And yet she doesn't choose to take him out right there. So I, I thought that that was such a good character moment for her. And it definitely caught me by surprise. So that was exciting. Yeah, I like the way that they linked the two scenes because they're, they're fairly similar, right? The resolution of what had, did happen out at the Wheeler house and the way that Clark's there, it's similar it was coin toss. Was it, was it Danvers or, or was it Navarro? You could make cases either way as a as a pundit prior to this. And then it turns out it literally was a coin toss. Liz says to Navarro, I was about to do it myself when you did it. And it probably, now we understand like the dynamic between them. 
Which one did it might have played out a little bit differently in the awkward six years after that. But nonetheless, it was a good scene. And I also, in retrospect, I didn't think it at the time, of course, but the journey that then Navarro goes on slightly after this and towards the end of the episode, I wonder if her decision not to pull the trigger is linked to that. I think it was. But yeah, a really good scene. Well done. Yeah. I mean, I was just really shocked the revelation that but Navarro just killed Wheeler in cold blood. I was very shocked and very, in a way, disappointed because those kinds of kills are usually earned. Like usually he's coming at her so she can't help it. She has to drop him. But to do that, I thought it kind of dirtied her up in a big way. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if she's going to survive this episode because usually when a cop goes dirty, they have to die. You know, that's kind of the trope. That's part of trajectory. If if you do something like that, you've got to pay for it. So I don't know. I was really conflicted because she was his judge, jury and executioner, right? When they had him dead to rights. I mean, they could have arrested him. He would not have been able to presumably get out of murdering his intimate partner. And yet they decided to do their own brand of Alaskan justice. And it bothered me. I didn't like that. I want to see my heroes nice and clean and tidy and always making the right decisions all the time and and be justified. Otherwise, she's just like the Salal guys. I mean, they convicted and murdered Annie for their own sense of justice. It may be really uncomfortable, that's for sure. All right, Jean, where should we go from here? Because we've talked, we kind of talked through a lot of this already as we're heading through the night or the day. Who knows what time it is during this this episode? But as they're going through the storm and it's getting colder, yeah. I don't know how much yeah, that, colder it could possibly be. Like, I mean, it's like yeah, how many levels? Yeah, of- exactly, exactly. <laughs> but isn't this where, so after this, Liz says, I'm tired. She goes off for a snooze and Eve wanders out onto the ice. And she said, we hear that like the ghost whispering to her. And she just seems to be at peace with that whole thing now. And so I think we're starting to see the resolution in this episode of this whole is it supernatural or is it not supernatural? And particularly Liz rejecting any aspect that this, this stuff is supernatural. And so I think it's interesting that we get, it gives us almost three answers or three different kinds mm-hmm. of answers. There's like, no, it turns out that the death of both the scientists and Annie Kay is 100% regular police work, right? It's human beings killing another. And then you've got things like Holden talking to Danvers and Holden talking to Navarro and these things that are clearly supernatural and of the spirit world. And then there's a whole bunch of other questions, which we'll come to, that end up get left hanging. And it's up to you to decide as the viewer whether they happened or not. And I'm really comfortable with the way that she's done that. People were like, oh, if they don't tie up all the loose ends, I'm going to be really pissed off. And they should have had another episode to spell everything out. It's like, really? You want everything spelled out in your life? I'm sorry. That's not how it happens. Yeah. I mean, I think they, like you say, Dean, you know, that veil between the natural and the supernatural is one that they're passing through all the time. And even the little necklace that Danvers finds in her hair, I was thinking about what does that mean and that the necklace shows up at moments of danger. And it's almost like, okay, why do people clutch their crosses or clutch those necklaces to protect themselves, right? You you hold on to your cross, you pray on your cross. And if there's somebody on the other side who is giving that object to the people that they love in a time of protection, like this will protect you. And it does. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Like, where did this necklace come from? How did it get into the car? How did it get into her bed? You know, who knows? But it's that passing back and forth of that veil that I think is really interesting. And like you say, it doesn't necessarily have to be explained. Anything else, you guys? Was it at this point that Navarro has the vision of her mother? I think this is it, where the hands just come together and and then you just hear her mother whisper her Anupiat name to her. 
about, so that's, it's, about that's, it's kind of all clustered through there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all just kind of clustered in there. And I can't even pronounce the name that, that she gave her, but it's like something like, because there's more consonants and vowels. And so for an Australian, let alone any English speaking person, forget about it. But it's something like, sin. we'll get Joel on the line. Give Joel a quick call. <laughs> we'll get him to pronounce that properly. But, but anyway, I was interested to see that the name means the return of the sun. Well, there's a bit of symbolism for you in the whole yeah. overall scheme of things. Jennifer, hmm. any thoughts about this, these sections through here as we barrel towards the end of the episode? Yeah, one of the aspects that I appreciate about this show is that it's positioned this binary in both of these two characters. One believes in there's more than just this, right? The Navarro psyche and mentality and mindset and perspective. And then you've got Danvers on the whole other side of the spectrum who's like, screeching the whole time like no we're just this is it guys like this is what we've got and i appreciate in this episode they kind of somehow begin to meet a little bit closer to together you know like you see danvers begin to believe a little bit more that there is more than just what meets the eye in the physical reality and then you also see moments for navarro where she also doubts and questions and so i appreciate that the show doesn't take a stance on one viewpoint or the other but it actually like allows us to play in the gray and there's so many conversations between these two around that dichotomy like is there more than is beyond what we can see and i love that the show kind of takes a stance of it's the things that you believe and the stories that you tell yourself that becomes your reality and i don't know if we're gonna, we want to get to this yet but i thought that the moment with the women coming together the indigenous women coming together and them saying this is the story and that is what is our truth. I thought that was just like the perfect way to tie in this binary that has been positioned between these two and like, let's play in the gray. Like there's more, it's more complex than just what is true and what is not true. Yeah, I loved that moment when Navarro learns her name, you know, that was set up a few episodes earlier. And I thought that was really that episode, that moment when she's so vulnerable with Kavik. I just, I loved it. It was such a good character moment, fantastic acting, like everything about it was great. And so then to see that finally paying off here where she learns that name and that source of pain that she has harbored for her entire life is finally able to start to heal a little bit. And so I thought that was so beautiful. And then obviously she learns the meaning of it. But the other thing about Navarro is we've seen her mostly as a loner throughout the entire show. She's never really fit fully into this indigenous population. She surely doesn't fit in with the white population. So she's kind of this like woman without a home. And so you can see how that name is almost like a restoration of her identity. And then she goes and talks with all of these indigenous women too. And obviously they're focused on the murder, but there's also this sense of bond and community. And she's able to learn from these women too. So I thought that was just really beautiful what they were able to do with her especially with that name mm, that's lovely said why do you think that they had danvers nearly drown you know plunge through the ice and have that sort of moment of nearly drowning other than it looked really cool and incredibly cold and apparently jodie foster it was a really rough shoot because even though that was in a tank and not really out in in a, a practical lake it was very disorienting to be in the water and she couldn't really see and when she was trying to float up after the scene was over like she got stuck and they had to dive in and get her so it was a it's a real those are real high risk scenes to shoot in the best of circumstances actually my my twins were in a USC thesis film once where they had to be in in a pool and they had like 10 lifeguards and divers and like just tons and tons of safety people in the pool. 
So I can't even imagine what a set like that was like. But what did you make of what was the meaning of her having to go through the ice? Any thoughts? Yeah. Sorry, this was a scene that they foreshadowed in different ways in a quite a, a number of different trailers, not least of all in the very first trailer. And I was not sure that it was going to be a real thing that happened, you know, because as the series went on, it was clear that you were seeing things and it wasn't perceptible at that time. Was this something that really happened or was it a vision when Navarro was seeing her soldiers, co-soldiers head half blown off? I'm mm -hmm. still not quite sure what any of those sequences mean, to be honest. What was the purpose of them? But nonetheless, there's certainly that desert's a juxtaposition to the snowy, icy tundra of, of Venice. But everybody's going under the ice, right? Peter's mm -hmm. putting Peter's putting people under the ice. There's the, what was it? The killer, the ice man, right? So Rose is like the ice woman. And I thought it was interesting that she said, okay, she says, look away. And in the first scene we see her ever, she's gutting a wolf. She doesn't gut Hank, but she certainly ventilates his lungs so that he won't <laughs> rise up. And then she says something about, okay, you think the worst is over. It's not. It's going to get worse on from here. And I went, how does she know that? And what led her to, to well, arrive? Well, isn't she in a psychologist and a therapist? So she knows that this is the, uh, this is like a really uh, traumatizing oh, yeah. experience yeah. and there's an Oedipal moment, to say the least. So anyway, I did think it was a good sequence. And the fact that you know he buries his father at sea. And then they sit down and there's a little discussion and the camera pans back and there's a northern lights substituting for a dawn, which the real dawn is actually coming. But I thought that was well done. I've had issues with some of the cutaways, but I thought that one really worked and it had to happen. We knew that he had to dispose of the body. And just sort of, I've got a note in here about the fact about, I think it's just after that, that Liz says to Eve, because remember Eve in the previous episode I said haven't you ever wanted to just go and just keep going and that sort of thing so alluding to what her sister Julia did and then Liz says to her was the effect of if you decide to walk out onto the ice try and come back and Eve said something about she's been trying to hold down the hatch for so long just like Clark was trying to do and she said maybe I should just let them in you know she's clearly talking about the voices and the feelings and the callings and whatever and I just it occurred to me and I sort of went back and went ah so Come back, says Liz to Navarro. Come back, says Kayla to Pete in the car. Come back on the phone, says Leah via voicemail to Liz. And of course, Liz would love to say, come back to Holden. So this idea of sort of returning, and I really don't want to sort of put too much into it. I'm not going to suggest it's like a rebirth or anything for it to fall in the ice and come out, but it's unusual to go in and come out alive. And it was certainly a, an affecting sequence, but yeah, very dramatic. Again, unrealistic. I was like doing the map. So I'm a diver, right? I'm looking at the long shot. I'm going, that's four meters. That's four meters underwater. There's no way that anyone can, there's no way Navarro can reach down. Your arm's only like three quarters of a meter. No, I'm not happening. Sorry. Anyway, other than that, yeah, it was cool. Jenner, Sarah, anything? Yeah, no, I resonated with what Dean said around it feeling like a rebirth because for so much of the show, we see the hard exterior for this character, for Danvers, right? Like she herself, I think it's episode two, she's like, I hate everyone. And it's out of that grief and pain that she's put these walls up. And it feels like after that sequence, almost a rebirth, like a baptism of sorts, mm -hmm. that she has been forced to put down all of these walls that she's put up. And you see just this softness, this vulnerability in her, this tenderness in her that you've never, we've never seen in the rest of the show. And I just finished a place like Ennis, and I think this is a theme throughout the entire show of like people being isolated. I love that it's Novara that had to take her out. And for a character like Danvers that like is like, so I've got it, I'm good, please don't help me, you know, like for her to have needed help, that is like a rebirth and a healing for her and a new transformation. Like, man, we need each other. 
And uh, she needed Navarro. Navarro was there to save her. I think for so long, we've just seen this hardness with this character. And, and I think for the rest of the show, we see just that transformation in her, which I thought was really aligned. And for anyone that's gone through like a, a health scare or a cheating death, like it does transform you mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. your perspective and your views shift and your understanding of yourself and your place in the world shifts. And I think it it took that for this character to really see that transformation. Yeah, I completely agree. I read it the exact same way. Yeah, that near-death experience, that rebirth that leads to who we see for the rest of the show and, and leads to that character change. You know, she goes from being just a bully and kind of the worst to being <laughs> like a somewhat pleasant person. And so I was like, OK, that dip in the ice did you some good. This is great. <laughs> And like you said, Lisa, it is a gorgeous shot. Like that was so cool. The way that she's floating down and then you see her light kind of like shifting around in the water. Like, oh, it was beautiful. I think I gasped at that point because it was just such a stunning shot. So it looked cool. Served the characters. Great. Folks, you might remember when we had Joel Montegrand on back in whatever it was there. I think it was episode three or thereabouts. Joel spoke about the podcast that he has focusing on Indigenous actors and guess who his first guest is? Guess, just guess. I don't know. Somebody on a show that he works with. Lisa, any ideas? Haley Reed. You might be right. So listen, <laughs> I've listened to that one of uh, that one interview, and it's a banger. And I'm going back for more. But in the meantime, folks, to give you a little bit of a taste, here's a promo of what Joel's podcast is all about. We've come a long way from Cowboys and Indians. It's a new age of cinema where we indigenous people are finally telling our own stories to the world. Tanse, and welcome to Actors and Ancestors, a new film and TV podcast where I take you behind the scenes to meet the indigenous actors bringing our stories to the screen. I'm Joel Dimoncran, a Rocky Cree actor from Treaty 6 and Treaty 10 in Northern Saskatchewan. You might've seen me in Beans, a story about the Oka crisis in Quebec. I'm also in the live-action Netflix show Avatar The Last Airbender and in HBO's season four of True Detective. Every month, I'll bring other Indigenous actors onto the show to tell you all about their film and TV paths. We'll push back against old industry stereotypes, celebrate their wins, and laugh a lot because we're ever sick with humor. <laughs> so if you're an aspiring Indigenous actor, I hope this show helps you on your journey. If you're not native and in the biz, you'll learn a lot about the experiences of the folks you'll want to work with and hire and perhaps how to treat us deadly so we'll know that you're a real ally. And if you just love TV and film, you'll get a front row seat to meet the hottest new stars and everyone will gain some wisdom from our honored elders and screen veterans. So roll out the red, red carpet for Actors and Ancestors, the indigenous film and TV podcast with me, J.D. Moncrain. Actors and Ancestors is coming soon to headphones resting on your earballs. So give us a listen. Okay. Emerse. That sounds fascinating. And uh, in the show notes, you'll find links to get more of that. But meanwhile, let's jump back to episode six and the grand finale. We have one more revelation in this episode that we've kind of all been waiting for, but I'd totally forgotten about. How did those scientists die? 
I did not see this coming, but I know, Dean, you did, right? That it was the... Uh... At least I make so many correct predictions, it's hard for me to keep track of it. You know, that's what it what was. Well, it I allegedly you kept said. noticing the presence of the actress, and I don't remember her oh, name. Oh, with the but three the actress, fingers. Yeah. Yes, who she doesn't really have three fingers, but her character yeah, in, does. That was the tip off to me that in real life, that actress is not missing those two digits. So they've done that for a reason and they made it quite explicit in the first scene where we meet her at the crab factory. And then she sort of wanders past them in the laundrette. She's kind of uh, lurking around there. You notice that. What are they doing? It just caught my eye and I'm going, there's going to be a payoff for this because this is not happening by accident. So yeah, anyway. But I absolutely just love this idea that all of the people that you don't know, they're there Mm. and they see everything and they bear witness to everything and they... They are the ones that really righted the scales in a way. And uh, anyway, you want to talk us through this section, Dean? Or Yeah, look, I first of all, scientific hat on again for just 30 seconds. I'm calling bullshit on the fact that they can just grab a U. So, oh, look, there's a UV light over there. There's a black light. We'll shine that on the top of the, the hatch that we stole from Lost. And oh, look, an entire handprint that's missing two fingers. No one even needs to call the forensic tech. I'm like, oh, bullshit. But okay, I see what you're doing. You want us to connect that with the cleaning ladies and the crab people. It's like, yeah, okay, fine. And of course, the illusion, as in not I, not I illusion, but the illusion is to the goddess Sedna. Now, we've covered that on our pod, Sarah and Jen. Have you covered Sedna on your pod? No? Okay. So Sedna is a real Alaskan slash Inuit legend. She was a young girl who she wanted to do something. I forget what it was. And her father wouldn't let her. And she was sort of pushing against it. So as you do, he took her out in the canoe and threw her over the side into the water to kill her and drown her. She tried to climb back into the canoe and with an axe, he chopped off some of her fingers. She drowns and afterwards in the afterlife, she becomes this avenging goddess of the underworld. So put those three words into what we now know and where we are in the arc of things and you kind of understand why they've created this character with two fingers, even though she wasn't the one that did it. But okay, so there's the payoff for that. So seven years after the death of Annie, we've got this suspiciously draining floor with a water seam. And then they just go into full Hardy Boys, Hardy Girls mode. And now they become Indiana Jones. They're like, oh, let's rip down here and let's go. Oh, my God. Look, here's a star-shaped stabbing implement. Oh, wait a minute. And just, again, I'm not normally like this, ladies, by the way, Sarah and Jen. And listeners probably going, oh, yes, you are. It's like... Oh, they killed her because she destroyed their life's work. Okay, we're talking about a multi-million dollar high-tech facility that's been researching for, what was it, 19 years. She goes down into this basement that's covered in dirty snow, muddy footprints, and she just throws a a few plastic tubes around. All their research is going to be terabytes of data on supercomputers. It's going to be up in the cloud. The fact that she smashed a few ice core samples, like, who gives a shit? That's just completely an utter. Well, I got the sense that it's because she now knew, now that she was a witness to what was yeah, going look, on. Maybe, but they did say because she destroyed their work. And it's like, yeah, but maybe it was the threat of it getting it, getting it destroyed. But look, I like it. And I like the fact that you've got, again, not to put too finer a point on it or draw too longer a bow, but the Salal scientists are what? They are highly educated, very modern very male, very well-funded, very rich guys, dudes who have this God complex, as all doctors do. I don't care if you're a doctor listening. You do. Don't care. And But they're discovered and ultimately taken down by a bunch of relatively uneducated, working class, poor, indigenous women, right? And if you look at the, the men, 
One was from Scotland. One was from Norway. They're from all over the world. So they're kind of international. And these girls are very much hyper-local. And so I think that was sort of a part of the whole thing. Yeah. Anyway, they get down there. They work out that that's what's happened. These are the guys that actually took her out. So they go back home. They get their pitchforks and their torches. Now they come in like sort of SEAL Team 6. I'm not quite sure that sort of doesn't quite gel with me, but it's serving a purpose and it didn't bother me that much. I'm happy for them to go along with that. And then they take them out on the ice and say, I think it's Beatrice that says, you strip naked and it's like you walk out and if she wants you, she'll take you. And if she wants you to come back, here are your clothes, off you go, we'll see what happens. So I thought that was a really nicely done sequence. I'm, I was quite happy with the resolution of what happened to them. Jennifer, Sarah? I just love that they folded their clothes up for that. Like, how polite, how wonderful. We love the hospitality. No, but I... Is that Alaska nice? Like the version right? of Minnesota yeah. nice from Fargo? Like, it must be the snow that does it. I don't know. If you're waiting for you, it's like perfectly the boots are like right on top too and all of them. Yeah. No, I thought it was a smart way to absolve them of any responsibility. And they go back to this sense of like, this is the story because they are not the ones that took them out. The show's been teasing us with the sense of like, is there spiritual aspects to this or not? And that's one of the threads that I think the show chooses to leave open-ended, which is smart to absolve them of responsibility. I think had they explicitly killed the scientists, I would have felt some type of way about it and, and been a lot more upset at that resolution for these characters and for this women and this kind of weird sense of morality and justice that the show's been playing with all along. But I thought that was, it was smart for them to leave that open so that we could wrestle with what is their responsibility or not? Is there a spiritual force here at play or not? I think it's one of the many threads that the show chooses to leave open-ended. Man, that scene when all of the women are slowly entering the room just was mm. beautiful. I loved that scene so much. And you see this coalition, this force, this community, this sense of trust and unity that they have. And it's just such a contrast. I think there was a scene earlier in the show, maybe three or four, when one of the infants has passed and you see all these women again yeah. coming together. Same we don't see groups of people together a lot in the show, in this world, right? So to see that camaraderie and that community in them, I thought was just a beautiful scene as they're telling the story together. So that, that scene, I thought was really beautifully done. Yeah, even though I had some of the similar qualms that you did, Dean, like I kept, as I was watching, I was like, these things don't make sense. I'm calling BS on some of this. That was still... One of my favorite parts, though, just for all of the reasons that you described, they're the exact opposites of all of these scientists. And it's like this perfectly balanced setup that we have here. And it was all the visuals were so fascinating to me, too. We first meet some of these cleaning ladies early on in that first episode. And, you know, they have spark, they have spunk, but they seem vulnerable. And then you see them in this final episode, like, carrying these like guns and forcing these dudes into this truck. Like mm -hmm. I can't imagine the planning that it took to do all of this and to pull that off. But I thought that it was such an interesting way to kind of tie all this together. And I did appreciate the creativity. And I don't know, I always tell people like anytime I start at a new job somewhere, some of the first people that you need to befriend are the cleaning <laughs> people. You need to make sure that you are nice to them, that you become friends with them. Like you should be nice to everybody, but especially those people that are overlooked. And I was just like, this yeah. is the reason why. If you ever doubt it, 
just watch True Detective season four and you will see (laughs) why you need to be nice to the cleaning ladies. I think in some respects too, when they were all gathering around, they weren't threatening at all. It was more, as you said, a sense of coalition and coming together. I found them incredibly threatening. I was worried for a few minutes. They're like, are they going to make these two detectives disappear? Or yeah, anyway. I didn't get that vibe, but what I did like, even though bits of it were unrealistic, you know, the whole armed, armed insurrection kind of thing. But to me, sort of, leads on from the stuff I said earlier about the environment, I got the sense that they were restoring the natural order, right? So we're taking out all this polluting technology that's owned by a company half a world away, that's male-dominated, that's high-tech, that's not sustainable, and we're just putting things back the way they should have been. And when Rose or who was it that said, it's been like this, you know, she's been here for centuries, she's been here before the mine, she's been here before us all that sort of thing. She is like a mother nature thing there, I think. And they're like, no, we're not putting up with this anymore. In the same way that when Navarro first is introduced to us, what happens? She comes along because Beatrice has just clouded this big bullying six foot four tough Alaskan dude, smacked him in the face with an iron bucket and knocked him out and broken his nose. These ladies are not to be messed with and they just proved it again. I just love that this community of women, they're just bearing wit to history. They're there in the beginning for the births right? They're the midwives. And then they're there to mourn the stillbirths. And then one of the women in the scene that I'm looking at right now, she was the crematorium worker. And so she's here. So they're there through every part of life, birth, death, dying. They're there through it all. And I just thought it was so beautiful. I mean, I've just never seen something like that, that so honored the community of women and specifically indigenous women and how connected they are to the earth and to the drudgery of life. It's so funny, though, in this scene where they're at, what's the name of this character? The lead, lead cleaning lady. I forget her name. B. I guess they're in her house. And if you look in the back, there's all these birthday balloons in the back and there's like a little half eaten cake and the house just looks really lived. And this is one of the things that I can't stand is when a house doesn't look like it's not the production design doesn't match the actual characters who live in the house. And these houses are just so lived in and just feel authentic. Anyway, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then we get to the very, very end, which very is a huge callback to season one of True Detective, where Liz Danvers is now months later after the fact, and she's sort of explaining herself and is being put on tape by the investigators. I don't know if they're from the FBI or from the government or from Alaska PD or wherever they're from. And she's retelling the test. She's retelling the narrative her way. And she seems very much at peace with how it's all gone. And I'm sure that poor Peter, Peter Pryor is severely fucked up from what has happened to him, but he seems to be carrying on too. Any last thoughts about these last scenes as we presume that Navarro has left the force and has wandered off and is on her trek? Any last mm. thoughts? I love the way that, and we've discussed this previously, Sarah and Jen on here, that they've needed to put the tech supers up at, at various times just to tell you what day it is, right? Because there's no, there's been no sunlight. So you can't see day. There's no night scenes. They're all night scenes, right? So they're also giving us the dates because each day is much like the other. So New Year's Eve marks the, so when all the shit went down, that was two weeks to the day since we were introduced to the first long, the first night without sun, the last sunset, that sort of thing. So now here we are. It's four months later on May. It's the first long day of the year. My little bit of nerdy research tells me. And by the way, folks, did you know that Alaska gets the opposite of what we've just seen, which is called the endless sun? So the longest day is June 21. So they get endless sun between April through August. 
So if the night didn't mess you up enough for those few months, then you cop it again. I don't think I'd like to live in Alaska. I live in Australia. We get daylight. We get four seasons. So it's four months later. The cops are questioning. But yeah, as you said, we're not quite sure who they are, but they're obviously her superiors or maybe internal affairs probably because of Hank's death, something like that. They're doing it gently. And the thing that struck me about me was that they were just absolutely clueless as to what has happened. And I think they knew that Danvers was shining them on, but they didn't have a credible alternative theory. So what else are we going to say? We don't have any other theories. And then Danvers says, there are lots of stories. So here's this thing about stories again. I don't know if you picked it up, but Liz is sipping coffee from that big cheesy mug that says Hawaii plastered yeah. all over it. And that's what Danvers gave her when they toasted New Year's Eve back in Salal. So the big question is, ladies, will Liz be charged with misdemeanor theft of private property for taking the mug? And will she be drummed <laughs> off the course? I don't know. So it's just the fact that they just went, okay. And of course, all that was missing that scene was a bottle of Lone Star and it could have been the same scene from series one when, you know, Cole is there being investigated and they're going, to, what the fuck just happened? And he's like, man, time is a flat circle. You know. So Jennifer and Sarah, what are your final thoughts as we roll to credits at the end of this? Yeah, no, I was going to say, I remember Lisa, you mentioning at the beginning of the episode, there was one thread that you were like waiting on. I didn't. So I'm intrigued to hear what that one is. But man, we just want Kavik to find love. Yeah. And I, like, me too. <laughs> Finding the SpongeBob toothbrush just broke my heart. But that was when sweet little moment at the end there. I think just quietly, Jen, we can hook you up. You know, we <laughs> yeah. have a direct line to him, so we can, we can do that. <laughs> so good. I think the choice of an ambiguous ending is fascinating. I'm intrigued to hear y'all's thoughts of that, how they choose to resolve this. I think we've seen, as we talked about earlier, there's some open threads in like room for the gray. And there's kind of this question of like open interpretation, what happened to Navarro? And the show is pretty specific around the details, around, you know, specific things that Danver says, like, I don't think you'll find Navarro out there on the ice, but this is Ennis. Nobody ever really leaves. And so it kind of feels like it's way of tying up these themes without tying up the events. I'm curious to all thoughts about ambiguous endings. They're, ambiguous endings are always volatile. People either love it or they hate it. Like you get one mm-hmm. side or the other. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. You go ahead, Sarah. Oh, I just, I'm happy that they didn't mess with Peter too much honestly like I was a little nervous that (laughs) this episode was going to be a little more Peter heavy and it was going to go bad for him because he's had a rough time the past few episodes so I'm glad that we didn't see a lot of him because then we can just assume that he's relatively fine and going on to leave live a somewhat okay life So I do like that we got to see Rose a little bit in this episode, and she did play a pivotal role. She was one of my favorites, and I just wanted to spend time with Rose, so it's great. And then, of course, Kavi. He's with his dogs. He's living his life. That's great. He'll (laughs) find someone else. So those little things, I was like, okay, the characters that I was really attached to are all okay, and I'm fine with this. I struggled a bit with Danvers. Now she's, after this near-death experience, this baptism, she has been reborn into a happier person. Like, I struggled with that because this is not a character that I know. But, okay, I'm just going to go with it. And I'm going to believe that a near-death experience changed her personality. And now she's Maybe hopefully- she's a little more at peace. Maybe a little bit more yeah. at peace and not yeah. so driven so to I'm fuck like- everything to, <laughs> to erase the pain. Yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, maybe a little like cheesy to me, but 
That's fine. A little cheese never hurt anybody. So that's great. She can enjoy her Hawaii mug and probably nobody will ever know because who's going to investigate? Nobody will know. So the last bit of the show where Liz goes to Danda's house, she finds the polar bear and we've got the mine closing and all that stuff before we get to that sort of the ultimate end end scene. Any thoughts on that stuff? Not really? It was very convenient that they got that confession. It all kind of wrapped up and then he conveniently kills himself in the snow. I mean... His character was basically finished, so there was nothing really more for him to do or be. At one point, I was worried about both of them in as much as once this thing gets solved, what do they have left? So Liz has still got Leah, but now that Julie is gone, what does Navarro have? And I thought that they might, she's got Kavik, or she did. And this again, they're playing with things because we know that Navarro threw the cross out of the window and then it ends up in Liz's hair. And Liz threw the bear out into the middle of the street and now it's on Navarro's bed. So these things that one thing I'm pissed off, they never, I don't think, unless I missed it, we don't know what the significance of the polar bear missing one eye is, unless it's just the toy that she recovered from the wreck and in the wreck, or that was just the way it was. It was a bit bedraggled. I think that's what it was. Then the mysticism comes in because how can Navarro have a vision of that in the middle of town with a real pot-sized polar bear, right? Yeah, we see the mine shut. and I. That was seen as a good thing. Like, yeah, okay, now the mine's shut, so that pollution's gone away. I go, the town is fucked. Like, that's 50% of the, maybe not, maybe it's just that, okay, they're going to, it's going to be a more traditional town, not one that's driven by the money and the pollution and the, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, apart from the final scene, that's it for me. I don't know how y'all feel about this, but the last string for me that remains so frustrating is just the non-explanation of Liz's particular kind of racism and not only racism but eracism as she tried to erase any indigenous symbols on leah and held such a just a vitriol against a certain liturgical aspect of the indigenous population because she clearly loved her stepdaughter loved her son who is part indigenous loved her husband served protected and served this community Yet she had this hatred for certain aspects. And I was waiting for an explanation. Like, was it, I thought it had to be linked to the accident. Like somehow were her husband and son targeted for their race and or something. Was she kept away from them by some sort of cultural, I don't know what it was, but there was something that she was blaming this culture with and and read a blogger who tried to kind of explain it and i just like to read it really quick and get your but it doesn't cut it for me but this is what how they explain danvers specific brand of racism is entrenched in her love which makes it fascinating her daughter is precious to her her daughter is indigenous and in this town an indigenous woman is not viewed as a precious thing they are abused and raped and murdered and therefore being white is the better choice she's effectively whitewashing her daughter, not only because she's afraid of what she doesn't understand and because a typical colonizer mentality, she doesn't want to lose her. Danvers can't distance indigenous identity from white violence and it's killing what she loves. So in a sense, her racism is a form of love and protection. I I mean, I understand that point of view and I think that's okay, but it just didn't get to the heart of her hatred for a certain particular, the certain tattoos and the certain things that seem to irk her so much. It does feel like the show like sets up that, what that blogger just shared in, I think it's like episode three or four right in the middle when, 
you see Danvers' anxiety and fear for Leia. I think it's when she comes back from the protest, right? And she says, get that off now because you see what happens to her. But you're right that the show opens this up, but then doesn't really have her character reckon with it. And I think it's well positioned to have somewhat of an arc or at least a wrestling with it that we see Danvers experience. There's some racism that Danvers also exhibits in episode one, like really early on in the interactions between Danvers and Navarro that we just never revisit again. I thought it would have been fascinating actually for the show to like dig into that a little bit more and have that be part of Danvers' arc. But we kind of sprinkle it in there and then just don't continue on that thread. It feels like a missed opportunity because I think it is an important point the show could have really had the viewers also like really sit with and reckon with as well. Yeah, I think I also struggled in the last episode. There's that interaction between Liz and Leah where Liz is trying to get Leah to come over and Leah's like, I haven't given up on you and that whole thing. And I think that's where I really started to struggle with this relationship because it it almost seemed like the show at that point was like, okay, we're, we don't have time to deal with this. So we're just going to patch over it and make their relationship okay so that we can maybe tie up some other things is kind of how it felt to me. That was one of the aspects that I struggled with in the end of the last episode when you see Liz and Leah together driving and chatting and having a great time. And I'm like, yes, that's really heartwarming. And Leah has her tattoo or she has the markings. Okay, we're all good, but just didn't wait. It didn't feel right because I'm like, Leah isn't going to change. And this her heritage is important to her no matter how much. Danvers falling into the ice changed her. It would have been really nice to actually walk through that, especially because the show or this season, I feel like really excels when it's focusing on indigenous women and the stories and the lives of the indigenous women. And so I think that would have been a really important moment for Danvers to be working out that racism that's in her instead of just kind of covering over it. So it was a missed opportunity for a really powerful point. A couple of quick things. I think that Issa's idea to raid the Fargo prop locker for all oranges has paid off big time throughout the entire series. I think they really popped against the white snow, Lisa, as you were talking about before. And I also want to shout out the performance of the plush toy one-eyed polar bear. He stole every scene he was in. And I'm going to start a petition so that he gets his own listing on IMDb. So three quick things. Number one, I don't think it's feasible that Navarro can just disappear off the face of the earth. I think that scene The final scene that we have with the two of them with their backs to camera, I think that's Liz seeing Navarro. And I think she's got to a place where she's happy to see spirits and ghosts and things. That's the journey that she went on in this final episode. So that's my take on it. But as you said, Jen, they've left it open. If you don't feel that way, you can go, no, she's still kind of secret aging around. And I like the way, as I said earlier, that Issa's left it open. You can take it one way or the other. One thing that I have to say, I think, Now that we've finished the entire series, I do not see any of the point of any reference to series one, the spiral, the Travis, the Tuttles, everything. It just distracted and it almost struck me as, was it shoehorned in? It wouldn't have been, but it's almost like someone said, no, we're going to bring in whoever and we're going to do a rewrite because we want to link it back to the series and make it more part of a true detective kind of thing. I don't think that's what happened, but it's what it kind of smelled like. So finally, I want to leave you with the story, listeners and ladies. So here's the story. It's set in Alaska. It's about 
two investigators struggling to solve the murder of an indigenous woman who had a secret and mysterious boyfriend. The authorities refuse to classify it as a murder. Then they find the murder Vic's boyfriend turns up naked, dead, and mutilated in the snow. There's a violent standoff between two opposing sort of power factions within the story. Ultimately, the murderer is revealed, is taken into the snow, and left to freeze to death. Did I just describe True Detective, or did I just describe Taylor Sheridan's 2017 movie, Wind River? Wow! It's Jeremy Renner. So some criticisms I've read about this series is that Wind River did a better job telling the exact same story. Now, if you're going to put Taylor Sheridan up against Issa Lopez, I'm not interested in having that sort of battle about who's a better writer. They're both amazing. However, Taylor's got the benefit of telling a story absent all the baggage that a true detective story has. And that's one of the reasons why I think that they could have just deleted all the series one stuff out of it and just left it there. Anyway, there's a full article on this. You'll find the links for that in the show notes as you will find the links to all of the recaps, as I usually do. And I'm going to give you a little Easter egg, folks. You'll find a link in the show notes that says, Is This Navarro? And there's a short 90-second YouTube movie to watch. Have a look at it and see if you think that's Navarro. So in keeping with True Detective Series 4, I'm going to leave it on that mystery. On behalf of my boss, Lisa Zambetti, and behalf of our wonderful guests, Sarah Kellen and Jennifer Han, who joined us. Thank you very much, ladies. And there'll be a link at the very top of the show notes to their very own podcast, which has also been covering this series. So if this much True Detective recap isn't enough for you, guess what? There's a whole another six episodes yeah, that you, you can go listen and listen to. to and you don't have to listen to us. But with that, we've come to the end of the show. Stand by because we've got, ah, Lisa, I'm going to do something you don't often do. What? And that is I'm explicitly going to promo an episode coming up for us. We are going to do an Oscars preview show. And it's not just, oh, Lisa hates the Oscars. She hates the Oscars. The only thing she hates more than the Oscars is the Globes, which she, and she hates the Oscars a lot. Yeah. Anywho, this is not your traditional, here are the nominees and Lisa thinks this will win and Dean thinks this will win. No, we have an extremely special guest joining us to talk about selected films that are in this year's Oscars nominations. And that is the incredible... World famous. He's even world famous off world. He is the incredible Howard Fine, the well known acting coach. Is it coach, Lise? Coach, teacher? What's acting the right teacher, word? Teacher, guru, right. master. Oh, all yes. Right. Okay. I mean, okay. please do go to the propublica.org website and look at the Lawless series. It is an incredible series of real journalism about how Alaska has the highest rate of sexual assault in the nation, yet everyday life, keeping those murders and stockings and all kinds of things a secret is a full-time job for some people so please go over and support that website so with all that said and we did say a lot this week it's been a lot of fun we hope you enjoyed it but for now this is killer casting signing off killer casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends, Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting out. <laughs>